Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 197, The Wise Use of Technology. We're joined again by technologist Kevin Kelly to explore the question of how to best engage with technology, while also exploring the parallels between Buddhist wisdom and cybernetic geek philosophy. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Kevin, I wanted to ask you about the wise use of technology itself. So this is maybe coming more from a perspective of the individual user, I guess, of technology. Mm-hmm. And personally, I've always been a huge fan of technology. I, I went into school and college as a computer engineer and ended up dropping out to go meditate. But I've always found technology to be a really crucial part of my life. And so as I stay connected with this whole tech scene, I hear a lot of the commentators and the the people that are most respected in those scenes, they kind of seem to assume that technology often is a good in itself, this phrase that came from Kant. It's becoming clear, though, that happiness is often linked more to being able to sustain our attention, to be with something, be fully present with things, and that technology often can be a force that sort of degrades our attention, that has us wander and multitask and do all sorts of things. In fact, in the New York Times, there's an article just recently this week, I think, about happiness being correlated to the tendency of the mind to wander. The more it wanders, the less happy people are. And I wanted to ask you, because you seem to really have wrestled with these questions a lot about the philosophy behind how we use technology, if you have anything to offer to say about the wise use of technology. Yes, I have thought about it, and I I would have to say that my book, if I was to add more to my book, I would add it in this direction. My thinking maybe has even clarified since I finished writing the book last year. And that is that in my kind of former life, I was really a minimite. Uh, I was someone who was trying to minimize technology. And my involvement in Wired, in a kind of professional way, was trying to maximize technology. I think the reconciliation would go this way, and that is is that um, the reason why I kind of had an um, admiration for the Amish, and I was really intrigued by them because they were minimites. They were folks who tried to minimize the amount of technology in their lives. And they're not Luddites. They're kind of like the whole catalog folks. They are trying to select the minimum amount of technology that does what they want to do. And they're different from most of us, not in that they select technology because we all do that, but because they do it collectively and because they do it collectively, they have articulated what their criteria are, which most of us don't have articulated. We don't know really, or we don't have a, a system or a guidelines for deciding what we're going to accept or not. We just kind of do it by feel. But the Amish, because they do it collectively, have actually have an ongoing dialogue about this, and they review it every year, and they go through their options and say yes to this, and they don't actually say no to anything. They just say not yet. And 
what I learned from that was that, like the Amish, I am also in my own personal life trying to minimize the amount. And the reason I think I do it is the same reason the Amish do it, which is that you can become distracted by technologies and that is in itself no harm. But the, the place where it kind of plays out is um, I think there's some you know, mix of talents everybody has. And what we're doing is, I think, seeking those few technologies that help us to unleash those talents and then really kind of delving into it or, or using those to exploit us and not being distracted from what we can do or should be doing by the other tools and technologies. There is certainly a sense in which we need to play with all those things to discover which one will work for us. And so I think the idea that we actually are constantly trying things is actually part of the mix, but we should try them and then kind of set them aside um, if they aren't working for us because all of them aren't good. Very few of them are gonna actually end up working for us. And I think we are trying to minimize those in order to find the few that work for us and bring out the best of us. And that's what the Amish do. And I think that's why I admire them. But I think that's actually only half of the equation in the total mix of things. I mean, I think there are a lot of religious sects like the Jains and others or the Hasidic that do some kind of minimalization of technology. So they understand that half of it, which is that you can kind of excel in your own dimension by minimizing it. I don't think that you necessarily all need to minimize on the same thing. I think that's going in the wrong direction. So that's one reason why I'm not Amish is because I don't think there's a uniform set of technologies for everybody. In fact, it's quite the contrary. I think there's a unique set for everybody. And the Amish do things collectively in that way. And I think that while it does give them a lot of support, it doesn't really actually optimize them. So I think the kind of highly evolved person actually has a very, very highly selected set of technologies that works for them and no more. But again, I think that's only half of the total mix because while I think I am and I think I can see others trying to minimize the selection of technology in their lives, I think what I'm also trying to do and need to do is to maximize the pool of technologies in the world at large in order for others like you and you and you and you to find your set. And so I think we're social animals. We live in social obligations to others because others in the past have made the tools that I'm using to return that gift. We need to enlarge the pool of possibilities for others and that's not what the Amish are doing. They are just kind of using tools made by others. So that's why I am interested in cool tools and I am interested in the kind of wired exploration of new things because it's opening up possibilities and choices for others that they might find that few sets of things that work for them. So while I can minimize my own life, I'm trying to maximize for others. As I was reading What Technology Wants, one thing, and even as I'm speaking with you here now, one thing that's really obvious is that you seem to really ponder deeply some of the key principles that you also find 
For instance, in the Buddhist tradition, things like impermanence and interdependence, you've used the word interdependent a few times in this interview. And there is one little section in the fourth chapter, The Rise of Extropy, that was really striking. It almost sounded like a kind of Buddhist statement, and I wanted to read it and then maybe get your thoughts on some of these principles. You write, The hydrogen atoms in a human body completely refresh every seven years. As we age, we are really a river of cosmically old atoms. The carbon in our bodies were produced in the dust of a star. The bulk of matter in our hands, skin, eyes, and hearts were made near the beginning of time, billions of years ago. We are much older than we look. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about your understanding of some of these core principles that you also find in the Buddhist tradition and in many wisdom traditions around impermanence, interdependence, interconnection. It'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think... Actually, I don't really know what the Buddhist teachings are, but I would say that that's also kind of the cybernetic systems approach to the world, which I probably learned at the Whole Earth Catalog, influenced by many, many thinkers, but also a lot of geek thinkers, which you know suggests very strongly that the foundation of the universe as far as we can tell right now is actually an intangible thing we call it information we don't have very good definitions of what that is but we have this understanding that even the most material hard thing that we know is mostly empty space and it's made up of little things called particles and those are made up of little other little particles which are actually just mostly space themselves. I mean, it's mostly just plain emptiness. And at the very bottom of the inside of the particle, inside the particle, inside the particle is probably information, meaning that there's sort of like nothing there. And then you have, you know, the quantum weirdness of that level of being all suggesting to us that these webs of interdependent forces working on each other, these circuits. We see things in terms of circuits and code, software. And this is kind of the geek view of the world, the cybernetic view where things come back to themselves. They circle back the Euroboros where the snake eating the tail. We have recursive infinite loops. A causes B, B causes C, C causes D, D causes A. And you're, whoa, there's a paradox at the, the foundation of everything. And so I think... I mean, we can argue what came first. Was it this kind of geek view of the world, a cybernetic view? Did that come from the influence of Eastern religions, or did they make us more susceptible or more of an affinity to Eastern religions? And so the answer is it's both. I mean, that's how things work. They're always co-evolving. But there definitely is parallels in the cybernetic world to the ideas that it's all flows, it's all flux, things are constantly changing, it's all process. In fact, there's a current strand even in Christian theology called process theology, which is basically focusing on the ideas of Godhood as process rather than as a fixed thing. And so I think this sort of fluid look at the world, again, it's reinforced not just by religious things, but I think even currently our kind of most advanced avant-garde understanding of science is that 
there are these intangible flows of something that are all recursively connected to each other, forming great webs of being. And I think it's no accident that the web of hyperlink documents rises large as a metaphor now because I think it fits into that the general metaphor that we have for the universe right now. Very interesting. And you know, taking this maybe just a step further in Buddhist practice, for instance, one would sit with their own experience and notice this impermanence and notice the interdependence in the world. And as a result, it's often described as a type of freedom that develops internally, a type of willingness to let the flow be what it is rather than trying to stop it or manipulate it. And I was wondering if there are parallels with the kind of cybernetic view or the geek view that seeing these things somehow causes or brings about a type of freedom and how you describe that if that's the case. For me, I think part of what the tech game, this cosmic evolution is generating or is drifting towards is increasing degrees of freedom, increasing free will, actually. I mean, this is a much more complicated and larger conversation, but I actually think that free will is increasing in the universe, at least, in again, in this extratropic thread of it, of life and technium, that we actually do increase free will. Your question also reminded me of the work of John Markoff, a New York Times technology writer, who wrote this magnificent, the wonderful book that was kind of ignored, called What the Dormouse Said. And it's about the, it's about basically the psychedelic origins of the personal computer. You know, it goes back again to Stuart Brand, the Holworth catalog, Ted Nelson, Doug Engelbar, and the many, many, many people who were inventing the personal computers and how basically psychedelic experiences, meditation, out-of-the-body experiences, drugs, and the whole thing were an instrument of their vision that they saw computers almost in the way you would see a psychedelic drug as a liberation and, and a freeing up of, of a new kind of, of thinking, a, a new kind of mind. I mean, Stuart used to always say, you know, he stopped taking LSD because it never got better, but computers get better every year. So he kind of switched to computers versus new drug in terms of mind-expanding drug. I mean, I think there is actually a very deliberate, a mindful metaphor among the people who were first inventing these things that, that there was a sense of these could liberate individual free will and freedom and choice and that these were tools for doing that and that they were mind-expanding. The kind of countercultural aspect of them has been sort of shifted a little bit to the gig side, where there's a belief that these were, again, forces for good. It's really hard to remember the ways in which computers were maligned in the 50s and 60s and even early 70s as the machine, this idea that they were going to introduce conformity and uniformity and you know, make everybody clones, and that was the vision of computers, and that has been completely upended, and now we have the geeks who see in these recursive circuits and the web of possibilities um, hope for, for something better. 
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.